Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Dan Madigan and Daniel Connolly. We're back from a little bit of a hiatus, but excited to talk now that basketball season finally started. Before we dive into that, though, we do need to talk football. The Huskies, since we last spoke, were able to get a win against an FBS team. They beat UMass. Huzzah. Unfortunately, since then, they have lost two games by a lot to Navy and Cincinnati by a combined score of 104 to 13. They've got two games left on the season against East Carolina and at Temple to close things out. Um, So obviously not anything out of the ordinary for UConn football as we know it, but on the plus side, at least they were able to beat UMass, right? I mean, I think there is something to be said about them comfortably taking care of a very bad team, something they could not do before. Yeah, it was impressive that UMass looked like one of the worst football teams I have ever seen with my own eyes against UConn football. That is an extremely impressive feat in itself. And like you said, it was good for them to just totally dominate and run all over UMass. And I feel like the scoreline really didn't do the game justice for how wide the gap was. It was only a 21-point win, which is, for UConn football, that's a very big margin. But I, the game was never really in doubt. Even when it was tied in the first quarter, UMass could do absolutely nothing to stop UConn's offense. They were just moving the ball at will. Kevin Mensa could just do whatever he wanted on the ground. So... It's great that we have them on the schedule for the foreseeable future because it's just going to be, hopefully they can, UConn can continue to get better and UMass can continue to suck so that UConn at least has one win every year. Yeah, Dan, it's hard to, you know, take care of business against the worst team when you are the worst team in college football, right? So that was UConn's problem last year. Uh, UMass is probably just as bad as UConn was last year, even though, the defensive numbers for UMass aren't as eye-popping as UConn's were last year, but UMass is so bad offensively that, uh, to me, it seems to balance out. My question for you guys would be, how are you feeling about next year? Because I don't know if we, you know, I don't know if we've seen enough to be in a position where we should be feeling really good about kind of the next year and year and beyond prospects for this team under. Yeah, I think I'm back at kind of the point where I was at the start of the season where I feel like next year I'm just hoping that things look better, even if the results aren't necessarily there, because nothing about what's happened since Randy Edsel's been here has shown that UConn can win those tight games and can go out there and not just like steal a win from a good team, but even just like earn a win over a respectable competitor. I mean, their only wins the last few years are two FCS schools, UMass, and then if you go back to his first year, it's Tulsa, who UConn's defense did everything they could in that game to try and lose it at the end. And then, obviously, there's the FCS win. And uh, help me out. Do you remember that last one? I am totally blanking on it. Temple. It was Temple. Oh, yeah. They, they and had then, like a, a, a very fluky win against Temple with like three turnovers or something like that. That says everything you need about the football program don't, right don't, there. Don't, don't quote me on the details, but yeah. 35 was, seconds to figure out. As you were saying, Dan, it was uh, the FCS win, which was, by the way, remember that was Holy Cross. That was a win by the skin of their teeth. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> that was that. Brian Sheriff won that game on his, yeah. by himself. It was like three wins by a combined six points or some, something like that. But um, it was Holy Cross, Tulsa Temple. <laughs> yeah, the fact that we had to even think about it says a lot. Yeah, like I, there, there hasn't been any indication that next season – there's going to be any reasonable jump. I mean, the de- defense is definitely better this year, but there was nowhere they could have gone except up, and it still gets lit up on 
a fairly regular basis. So can that really make a jump into being a decent defense that can get stops when it needs to? And then can this dumpster fire of an offense figure it out? I mean, it it's incredible to me that Jack Sergiotis has actually looked somewhat decent and has some potential when he's playing at Rensselaer Field. But then he goes on the road and like there's just some switch that flips because suddenly he every single decision he makes is terrible. Like he can't throw the ball accurately anymore. It's really bizarre how he just totally becomes a 180 degree different player just due to the venue. So I feel like there's questions at literally every single position on the offense besides maybe wide receiver and running back. Yeah. And did you, did you see, uh, it was Alex Putterman from the Hartford current, um, in, a in a, story from the from the sunday sunday media call he said he said the nc state transfer michael leone would be starting if it wasn't for his injury i was like dude there is no way that is is reality uh or, or that that is the case but um you know i think with Otis, it's that he's a freshman uh that's not not too too surprising uh that he gets extra jittery on the road um, I think if we're trying to look at some of the positive aspects, the offensive line is a bright spot and a place where it's tough to be good when you're when you're UConn uh, or any G5 team. It's really tough to be, to get good at the offensive line. So should give them credit where credits due that that unit has improved and or looks looks good enough. Um, this year's running back crew, Mensa and Tompkins, are are good. Obviously, they'll lose Tompkins next year. Um, and then Mensa will be a senior next year. Uh, at wide receiver, you got Cam Ross. That's a good player to have emerged, but uh, don't seem to have a whole lot else. Um, and, yeah, I mean, quarterback, most important position on the field, it's like we, we need to feel better about that. And, and, like, you know what you're doing there, which is something that, Connolly, I know you've, you've harped on a lot. The defense incrementally getting better, but um i don't know if uh, i i we'll see I, I i agree with you uh kind of what both you guys said about just that the defense will get there potentially or probably but the offense looks like it's still a ways away and then the biggest additional piece of with that is the offensive play calling i mean it's it's like we don't want to beat a dead horse or talk about the same things every time we talk about the football team but like come on the play calling is something that i think is really keeping this team down i agree i i think it's just upsetting to see especially under lashley and 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 dunn where there was some really exciting plays uh some tempo uh things that you want to see in a modern college football offense and i've really seen any of that this year and it's frustrating to be totally honest um uh, i think it's hard to you know win games playing this way win recruits playing this way um and I think that's going to add up in, in the long run. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's Frank Jufri needs to go after, after this season. I, I don't really know how else to say it or, or, you know, not be the offensive coordinator anymore if he wants if, and remain with the team. But um, the defense is showing flashes. Uh, the offense clearly has players, right? Like Matt Pert, Cam Ross, Kevin Mensa. Uh, those are, those are pretty solid players, pretty solid division one football players. And there's still really nothing to show for it um even even with a mediocre at best quarterback so uh it's it's frustrating and that's something that's going to be really interesting to see going into 2020 and you know i don't want to harp on this too much but after next season randy etzel's buyout is zero dollars so i don't think anything will happen to him he's going to be safe this year he might be safe next year um but the price is going to be right to start over um after next season. So it'll be interesting to see because if there's another season where they're one and 11, two and 10, um, maybe even zero and 12, uh, there's going to be some pressure to make a change. And it'll be interesting to see what Benedict does uh, in their going into their second year as an independent in 2021. Yeah. If you don't make a change at the offensive play caller, then I don't think you can have any credibility to the fan base, to the media, to your own players that you're trying to win because it's not just that 
it's conservative, which it's extremely conservative. That's one thing. But it's not that they're running some bizarre plays, which they are. And then it's not just that they're misusing players, which they are. It's that they're doing all of those things at like equal amounts that are literally costing them games. I mean, there was the USF game. They got down to the goal line and they ran the, the first ball up the middle, which that's fine. They tried to throw it to Mensa. He dropped it, but you've got a really good receiving back in Art Tompkins. Why are you throwing it to Mensa? All right, that can be explained away by something, but then it's to third and fourth down, and they were running Art Tompkins up the middle on a power play. Like, I, someone could pick up Madden for the first time in their life and figure out within 10 minutes that that's not the player that you want running up the middle. It's just... It's just so frustrating how, Amon, like you said, there's these play calls are directly impacting the game, and maybe a couple play calls a game aren't going to make the difference between a 49 to 7 loss and a 49 to 21 loss. Like, those aren't much different, but at least you'd be building towards something. Right. And, that, and that's the margin that we're trying to track this year, the ones who are at least somewhat being practical and saying, okay, let's see what's up with this team. Actually, that difference between 49-7 and 49-21, it is significant because at least there's something to build on. And I think is what it comes down to is no matter what, even if you're rebuilding or your talent situation is dire or whatever it is, whatever it might be, um, there's no excuse not to put your team and your players in the best position to win. And I think that's the, the part where we're not seeing that. And the Houston game was another example of that. Was they could have they could have done a better job there, and and that could have been a big upset that that buoys everyone's spirits and and uh, you know gets some positivity going. There was that scene on the sidelines. Uh, I believe it was the Tulane game. Uh, if you guys remember, where you know we got to see the cameras uh, with Beaudry and Edsel getting into an argument. Kind of looked like Beaudry was wanting to go for it on a fourth and short in two-lane territory when the Huskies were down, but at least driving. And uh, Edsel didn't want to, and, and you know, kind of they both, both seem to be having words on the sidelines. So that's the kind of stuff where, you, again, we're able to be standing about a rebuild, your talent situation, whatever it may be, but you need to understand your circumstances. You are UConn in the AAC or UConn, the future independent and not UConn in the big East. And you can't play that 1994 NFL style of football that you love so much, Randy Etzel. Uh, so that's, that's going to, if that continues to be an issue next year, uh, you know, next year is when we get to start to have, it's, it's year four after all, like I think no matter what he's been able to cycle in, quote unquote, his players. Uh, he's had plenty of time to work with the system and, and all that gibberish. So, you know, I think they have to win a few more games next year than they do this year. Otherwise, it is going to start to be a hot seat. And I think that buyout situation does become relevant. Yeah, I think a four and eight season next year would be fully acceptable as long as they're pretty much in let's just say nine or 10 of those games. I mean, if, if they go four and eight and they lose three games by a single score or at least single digits and they're in a couple others before maybe they get away and there's only maybe like one or two blowouts, then, I mean, I think that is a sign of progress. Whereas like this year, what we were hoping for was that the defense would improve, which it, it kind of did and that there would be less blowouts or less severe blowouts. And that second part hasn't happened. So that's where the issue of, is there really progress kind of comes in because is how much of a difference is there between a 49 to seven blowout to Cincinnati last year and a, a 48 to three blowout this year, especially not to the casual fan who's checked out. Right. Which is, I would imagine, 95% of what even's left of the fan base. Yeah, no, again, it, definitely realistic to have actual expectations for improvement next year. But again, who's going to be playing quarterback? It's going to be Zergiotis up and down, you know, or 
someone like Krajewski or whoever it is, it's going to be someone with less than five FBS starts on their, you know, on their resume. And obviously at quarterback is the most important position on the field and we're still not solid there. I will say there is talent and promise there at the position, but um, someone's going to have to re really explode as a quarterback, as a passer next year, or they bring in a few other running backs and be, you know, a really legit run first team the way Randy Etzel has wanted to be so badly. But um, either way, to me, it's, it's when we think about um, that long-term thing, it's, it's going to need, it's going to require a big jump from uh, in terms of whoever the starting quarterback is, whoever that may be. It's going to need to be a big upgrade from what we've seen in the quarterback so far this year. Yeah. And that's what I think, you know, just quickly, and we can get on to basketball, which is much more exciting is, is like, there's promise. I think there's, there's some pretty talented players on both sides of the ball. Um, and it, it's not clicking. And I think some of that comes down to coaching. Um, the defense is still very much a work in progress, but the offense, I would, I would argue that the offense has, you know, outside of quarterback, just as much, if not more talent than they have had under Etzel. And even one of the last few years under Diaco outside of Arkeel Newsom. Um, there's pieces there, but it, it, it's not clicking and, you know, Etzel or someone needs to bring in uh, a coach or a coordinator that can make those pieces click. Yeah, well, we will move on to basketball shortly, but we do need to have one more other discussion about the football team, and it is actually a more positive one. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we got a good chunk of information about what the independent schedule is going to look like in the future, specifically uh, next year, the 2020 football schedule, um, which uh, I think we can all admit we were kind of sweating uh, that it might be a disaster. I think. Um, that's probably my biggest takeaway from it is, is at least crisis averted. The schedule looks solid. Uh, nine games were announced. Uh, those opponents are UMass, Illinois, UVA, Indiana, Maine, Ole Miss, Liberty, San Jose State, Army, and then an ACC school yet to be named and what will probably be Middle Tennessee. Um, the reason we're expecting Middle Tennessee is because uh, actually one of the ways that, that athletic director David Benedict got this schedule in place was by breaking up uh, a game. One of those was Ole, breaking up a couple of games, uh, but one of those was Ole Miss and Middle Tennessee. Uh, UConn will be making a visit uh, to Mississippi, which at least is a really interesting college football venue to, to go to, and then Middle Tennessee State, which, hey, we need the game. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, crisis averted, and this is, a, this is a good start for what the independent schedule will look like, and I think the other just biggest thing that I have to say about it is that hopefully this is the worst it will ever be, and I'm not saying that as if this is the worst schedule ever or anything negative about it, but just that it looks like in future years where be more of that um, old Big East flavor, let's say, probably uh, I, Mike Anthony confirmed, Mike Anthony said that, um, you know, there are games with Syracuse and Boston College in progress. I'd imagine Rutgers, Buffalo, Temple, all, all of the possibilities, but we'll probably have more of that flavor in the future. But for now, this is a pretty good starting point, right? Considering the amount of time they had to make this work and that it all kind of happened behind closed doors, I think the fact that they can put together this kind of schedule just shows that scheduling-wise, UConn's going to be fine in the world of football independence. And I think it still just kind of confirms that David Benedict is fully capable of being the guy that can lead UConn into football independence because doing something like breaking up the game with Old Miss and Middle Tennessee, Ole Miss still pays Middle Tennessee for the game. UConn gets the game. So pretty much everyone comes out a winner. Ole Miss still gets an easy win. It's something really creative and not necessarily something 
at least I hadn't thought of, of how they could schedule some games. And at the same time, you have some funky games, like, unfortunately, Liberty. And going to San Jose State, I imagine, isn't really ideal. It's going to be the furthest road trip in program history. But for doing it in, what was it, four months is really incredible. And now that we're going to have time to build out some schedules, we're kind of getting a sense of what that's going to be. I mean, if you look at, we just have a series with Army that goes up to 2027, I believe. We've got, we've already have, we've already had some Power 5 schools on the schedule. So like you said, if you can start mixing in those regional schools, mix in some by games like the Ole Miss game and the Clemson game and the UCF game, I think it's going to be a much more attractive schedule and it's going to be more competitive because UConn isn't, I would imagine, isn't going to be facing the UCFs and the Cincinnati's of the world without at least getting something for it. Whereas in the conference, like us getting killed by Cincinnati was absolutely no different than us barely losing to Houston in terms of money. But now UCF wants to kill us. They have to pay us over a million dollars for it. Same thing with Clemson. So I think it's going to be really exciting to kind of see how everything else unfolds from here and what Benedict's going to be able to do once he has some actual open dates on the schedule and can use his creativity that he's already found scheduling these games to build UConn schedules going forward. Yeah, I mean, Danny, you nailed it. This is Benedict kind of blowing everybody's mind, right? Uh, like, you know, our own Sean McGrath did a, a pretty good job of trying to plot out what a 2020 schedule would look like based on all the information that was out there. And um, Benedict just said, you know, what if I just blow all that out of the water and just do whatever I want and whatever I need to get games? Um, it's basically him turning water into wine for the 2020 season. To to be totally honest, it, it's it's a pretty solid schedule. Uh, there's some regional appeal with UMass and Army. Uh, there's some marquee games: uh, Illinois, Indiana, Ole Miss, teams that you have to play, like Liberty and San Jose State. But um, you know th- that's something where I think fans are going to be willing to kind of deal with that for 2020, since they know this is kind of a, a weird transition phase. But you're right. I mean. Going forward, there's a lot of fun games to look forward to on the schedule. There's games with BC. There's a bye game with UCF, which, in all honesty, is probably Benedict's best work. Uh, getting a team that's in the conference now that we're in, that UConn's in, uh, that UConn plays every year uh, to fork over a million dollars to play us, to play UConn two years from now. Pretty incredible. Um, but I think it's good, and, and, you know, there's other independents out there there's other games that can be scheduled. Uh, it definitely seems like he's willing to be creative to, to make things work in a pinch, which I think is going to be important. Um, it's never going to be all one big money grab. Like I think people, you know, want it to be or expect it to be. There's going to be some rocking a hard place situations where there's going to be some money sacrificed, or we're going to play teams that aren't necessarily the greatest. Uh, but yeah, have to have games on the schedule. So as long as there's some regional appeal and some power five teams on the schedule, I think it's really hard to complain about what these schedules are going to be year in and year out. And for having, you know, less than six months, it was like four and a half months and change to put this together. I think this is a pretty, pretty great job by David Benedict to get things going for the 2020 season. Yep. And yeah, to talk about the guys that they have on the books for the future, they've got uh, Duke, Maryland, and uh, Purdue, uh, with both with home and homes. So, again, looking like UConn is going to have not a huge problem getting kind of that level of team. And then there's also, of course, the possibility, I think it was something David Benedict mentioned at, um, after the release, the possibility of something like uh, a basketball doubleheader at MSG followed by a football game in New York, which, I mean, right, like sign me up for, for that weekend anytime. Uh, so to, to do, to be able to do stuff like that and then be able to draw, you know, really marquee opponents, I think anyone, and I mean that anyone, Alabama, Georgia, USC, whoever would want to come to New York and also get, um, you know, a 
for what for them what would be a pretty solid win um or a pretty pretty comfortable win not not solid not solid resume win but but a comfortable one so i think the pull of being able to do stuff in new york uh is going to be really good and interesting for the schedule and always a fun time for uconn fans and alums uh the thing that the thing that we're going to keep an eye on in terms of that financial viability and and how attractive it is for players is going to be what kind of tv deal they get now um which right like we're we're hoping to see some sort of announcement about that um that's where sny or nesson uh maybe both in some capacity are going to have to come in and then um bowl games that's going to be the other big one obviously um there uh, is the possibility of signing an independent bowl deal with ESPN. Uh, that's what some schools have done. And I think the whole point of these bowls is to make, you know, make money and have as large of a fan base attend as possible. So I think the other thing to just think about is that uh, UConn might be a good fill-in opportunity for something like the Pinstripe or their, their launch new bowl in Boston. Uh, so, you know, UConn could be a good fit to get get in on that. Um, so I think there's a lot of possibilities for UConn that uh, can make sense for both TVs and bowls. Uh, but um, we will have to – that's kind of the next step, I think. It's good to see the schedule looking good, thrilling stuff, um, but got to figure out the TV and bowl situation. Yeah, and Amana, you know, just thinking kind of out loud here, but, you know, what – school makes the most sense to play a double basketball and football you know weekend series in new york is notre dame um it it fits the bill and you know i i think i saw rumors about that somewhere floating i'm sure it's nothing more than that but i mean that would be a big fish uh where everybody makes out with a lot of money um and i think it'll be interesting to see you know what comes out of that yeah, and also I I don't think Benedict would do this, but um, I think there's a non-zero chance. This is no information, just hype, just hypothetical that uh, ESPN Plus is involved in a football deal, which would be ironic. But I think SNY and <laughs> Nesson are are much more likely suitors. But like that would be a real humbling moment if SNY and Nesson back out and ESPN plus whoops in and picks up the football deal. Um, well, I mean, it, it would it, look bad it, on the American more than anything. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be whatever for us. It's, it's more like, again, uh, priority number one was getting basketball into a very nice house yeah. and they mission accomplished. And then for football, it's like, how can we put them in a better position and keep the money closer even maybe potentially better and looking also like they're going to be able to do that pending the information in these deals coming out so um i but yeah i mean i think if, if football if only football ends up on espn plus that's a lot different from football and tier three men's and women's basketball being on espn plus huge difference yeah david benedict literally uh said in a I believe it was on the Husky Insider podcast on ESPN Hartford that the number one concern with them for the new American deal was, wasn't basketball on ESPN plus it was women's basketball on ESPN plus. So everything else on that is kind of gravy because as we know, it's probably not the most uh, technologically advanced fan base. And we also know that UConn women's basketball, can draw TV ratings. I think it was either uh, two years ago or three years ago that SNY sent out a press release that women's basketball games on SNY were getting higher numbers than the Knicks and the Nets in the same market in less desirable time slots. So clearly there's a huge, a huge market for women's basketball. So keeping that off ESPN Plus was big, but I think the fan base is kind of fragile with football where I don't know if going behind a paywall would really be a, uh, anything other than a last resort for UConn because 
I think they need to do everything they can to get eyes on the program, whether it be in the stadium or just even watching or just tuning in in some form or fashion. And if you put it behind a paywall, I think people are really just going to kind of cut bait with the program and say, you know what, if they're going to make it hard to watch the games, I'm just not going to watch the games because why should I? They're terrible. So I think it might be a little dangerous to go the ESPN plus route unless there is literally no other options available. Yeah. I just don't know if there's, there's a situation where ESPN happily signs a bowl deal with UConn and I I don't think ESPN's heart is that broken about what, what UConn has done to be, to be honest. No, I'm just saying it just makes more sense for them. Like they're just looking for content on ESPN plus not as like a revenge on UConn kind of thing. Like, they need to fill content, so having football on there would help. But yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, 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 or pie in the sky. But like, I think SNY or Nesson is a hundred percent like the best suitor and the most likely suitor. But I don't think it's crazy to say that you know UConn signs a deal with ESPN Plus, but it's a some sort of guarantee or some crazy good chance that they end up in a bowl game if they get six wins. Yeah, and the the other thing about that is. And we kind of discussed it when the AAC deal first came out. ESPN Plus is a is a solid product on its own. Just put putting UConn's, you know, television rights and that whole picture outside of it. ESPN Plus has a lot of soccer, a lot of tennis, a lot of interesting commentary stuff from like Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning and stuff like in season commentary. They've got they're putting a pretty good pretty good thing together. And some of the other options would be streaming. Right, so there are some uh, there are some teams like I know MLS is on Flow Sports uh, for some teams and uh, Fubo is one. Right, so like there's those streaming services that might be the other option, but those are more expensive than ESPN Plus. Whereas you got ESPN Plus at five bucks and you get you get a lot more with it. So, um, you know, there's there's I agree with you. Obviously, again, you're not going to rope in the casual fans, but uh, there are ESPN Plus is just is just stacking up niche sports audiences, so it might be a scenario where you like UConn football and some other thing that they have, and as a result, you you get ESPN Plus. So yeah, and Disney Plus comes out this week, and they've already floated out a bunch of bundles um, and stuff like that. So. I wouldn't be surprised if ESPN plus becomes more and more popular very, very quickly. So um, it'll be interesting to see what this conversation is even six months from now um, and how things shake out. Hopefully we have some insight onto what the TV deal might look like by then, but I think it could be a very different landscape even in the next, uh, you know, four to six months. Ooh, yeah. Lots, lots to unpack there because it is a unique situation for the Huskies, but um, we'll be, interesting to keep an eye on uh, from now until they finally make that move uh, coming to you next summer. Um, Another more exciting news, basketball season has begun, both the men and the women. Uh, We'll start with the women's team. The Huskies played two exhibition games and then opened their season with a less than extremely impressive, which is kind of what we've come to expect from them, less than extremely impressive performance against Cal. Uh, Connolly, you were there. Uh, How do we feel after that season opener with the win over Cal? I think Gino put it best uh, in his post-game press conference. He said the game was weird and he used the word weird to describe the game 11 different times throughout his press conference. And it was because it was never really like a game that I thought UConn had any chance at losing. I mean, I think Cal took the lead at one point early in the first quarter, but once UConn got it to double digits, it it was never going lower than that. UConn was doing enough to keep its head above water, but it it's definitely not a great start, but I wouldn't really get overly concerned about it just because they have so many new players that haven't played many minutes in college basketball. I mean, Gino's said Olivia Nelson Adota is the most important player on the team, bar none, and Sunday was her fourth career start. So it's not like they really have 
a ton of experience. They're all kind of trying to figure out how to split up the scoring load because, as Gino said a lot, you've had the last few years, Nafisa and Katie Lou were going to score 40 points every single game. Now you kind of need to figure out how to fill that in. And I think because outside of Crystal, who's going to be the point guard and isn't really like a give me the ball, I'm going to go score type player. She's more of a facilitator, even though she can score. I think it's kind of now for the rest of those core four to figure out what the balance is going to be, who's going to demand the ball, who's going to, when you need a shot, take the shot. Like those types of things, I, I feel like they kind of have to work through those and it, it's just going to take time on the court to figure it out. And I think some of it's going to be kind of ugly and we're going to, this isn't going to be the only game that isn't necessarily the prettiest, but I think in time they'll figure it out because it, maybe this isn't the best UConn team of all time, but there's still a ridiculous amount of talent on this team. I mean, Crystal Dangerfield is arguably the best point guard in the country. Megan Walker and Kristen Williams could both be two of the best scorers in the country this season. Olivia Nelson Adota can impact the game in the way few other players can. And then you've got an athletic freak on the bench in Aubrey Griffin. You've got a really good offensive player in Anna Makarat, Anna Makarat once she comes out of her shell. So there's too much talent here for it to not get better. So I'm not really concerned about it being the first game, but it's definitely an eye, something to keep an eye on just for the fact of seeing how long it takes it to kind of get going because it's going to get going. And luckily they have a couple easy games uh, coming up, so it'll give them some time to gel. But I think it's really just going to take time with this team and it's going to be a progression throughout the entire year. It's not going to be like Brianna Stewart's senior year where the beginning of the season they were the best team and they were still exactly the same team at the end of the year just because how good they were. Even like two years ago, it was pretty much the same team wire to wire. So I think it's going to be a lot of improvement as the season goes on. I think there's going to be some rough moments, but I, it's still going to be a very, very good UConn team that maybe just isn't as aesthetically pleasing as it's been for a long time. Yeah, Dan, you're right. I mean, it's just going to take some time for this team to gel. There's a lot of inexperience there. Um, but there, there's some interesting pieces. You know, Williams, like you said, is, is an elite player. Same with Walker. Uh, Makarot should be pretty interesting off the bench. And same with uh, Evelyn Adebayo. And, um, you know, it's unlikely that Avina Westbrook's waiver is, you know, overturned or ex- approved, I guess. But um, if that happens, then that could change the whole dynamic as well. So it's still a little early, but um, I don't think there's any reason to be worried at this time. But it'll be interesting to see how they kind of develop and come together. But I think, you know, Nelson Adota played well. Uh, Walker, Williams, and Dangerfield played well and that you know, group of four is going to be key. So as long as they're playing at their potential every night, UConn's going to win most of their games, if not all of them. Well, but that's the, the, so what happens with young and inexperienced players? They don't, their, their consistency is one of their biggest issues and they don't always have their best stuff every night. And um, I think with how hard the schedule is, and just as we've discussed a lot, just, how much production they're replacing. We, we still cannot say enough about what Nafisa Collier meant to this team, just as a solid, big, and power forward who was a double-double every single night. Like, that, um, that's not, you're not just going to fill that in. And I'm not sure who's going to be that person who, uh, especially on the rebounding front, uh, is able to fill that gap. And then... Um, I just I'm I'm concerned not necessarily because of this game but just what we what we know about the inexperience on the roster relatively speaking and then how many difficult games they've got on on the schedule so to me it's it's looking like a team that's going to lose a couple games this regular season uh, not necessarily the worst thing in the world and definitely not you know is not time to have that conversation of like is, is the UConn dynasty no not that 
the next two recruiting classes are, are both in amazing shape. But I think this year is going to be a year where they really take some lumps. Uh, I, I think it might be, um, you know, the closest thing to a building building type of year, development year that this program can have. I actually kind of have a hot take. I don't think the schedule is that good this year. I think the name recognition on the schedule is pretty fantastic. I mean, when you look at a home schedule and it has Notre Dame, Oregon, Baylor, Tennessee, um, and then South Carolina on the road, that's pretty great. But if you kind of dissect it, Notre Dame's not the same team they normally are. I think they were ranked in the lower half of the top 25. They've got a really young class. I think even this UConn team should handle them pretty well, but you can't ever really count out Notre Dame. Tennessee sucks. That's They're not anywhere close to even being a decent program anymore. They're, they shouldn't have even been in the NCAA tournament last season, and that's really not a high bar to make. Then you've got those three games against Oregon, who's far and wide the best team in the country. They just beat the U.S. national team, which says a lot. Baylor, who was up 51-3 to on New Hampshire at halftime of their game. And then South Carolina, who just beat number four, Maryland. But are three good games on the schedule much different than par for any UConn course? I, I really don't think so. So I think those are really the only three losable games on the schedule. So, yeah, three regular season losses would be the most that they – have since I believe 2012 13 when Stewie was on the team. It would have but to be even before that. Really, I think they lost three Stewies. Yeah, they lost okay. they lost three Notre Dame twice and Baylor once, I believe. Yeah, and then they lost to Notre Dame in the Big East final. But um, yeah, so I I think. Record-wise, it's going to be, at worst, uh, a two-loss team. I don't think they lose all three of those tough games. It helps that all of those games are later in the season because like, if they had to open up the season against like Baylor, I think they actually would have gotten rocked and like beaten in a way we haven't seen UConn get beaten in a while. But they've got a couple weeks until even just Notre Dame and those three big games that I've mentioned, those are all after the new year. And that is a long, long time away. So I, I think record-wise, it's not going to be much different. And look, it's UConn. They're going to figure it out somehow. They've got Gino Oriama, and they have a very, very good point guard in Crystal Dangerfield. And I think when you have at least those two combinations, they're going to be able to mix and match what they need on any given night if one of those core four is not having a good game. I think someone on the bench is going to be able to step up and make an impact or one of the other players is going to be able to step up. So I, I, I'm, I'm just not buying the, um, the idea that this is significant, significantly worse than, or is a rebuilding year for UConn. I think the roster that they have, even without Avina Westbrook is more than capable of getting to a final four as, as it is composed. My thing with that is, it's not necessarily that it's hard, you know, they've, they've been playing a hard schedule year in and year out. So I'm not necessarily saying that it's harder than years past, but just that this team might be less equipped than years past to handle a hard schedule. Um, and then, you know, Oregon and Baylor, if we talk about, it might not, it might be the same number of losses, uh, but Oregon and Baylor might beat UConn in ways they have not been beaten in the regular season. In a, you know. Yeah, that Oregon game is going to be so interesting because barring something crazy, they're going to get rocked, and it's going to be sold out. It, it, I believe it's at Gamble, yep, and yep. It's, it is not going to be pretty. Uh, there's n- nobody that can guard Ionescu. Crystal Dangerfield's not going to be able to guard Ionescu. Um, and, you know, they might be able to contain uh, Hebert and Setu Sabali, but it's not going to be good. And it's going to be really, really interesting. So th- that'll, be, that'll be fun to see how they rebound from that because um, it could be one of those things where they take it and they build on it and, you know, they, they learn from it. 
or it just completely crumbles them and it you know they lose in like the sweet 16 to george washington or something Ew. yeah i don't know I, I i still think it's so far off that it's really hard to say we still haven't gotten a look at what this team is i don't think the cal loss i think i think the first exhibition is more of an like okay that's i just don't think the cal game is a great indication of what this team is going to be i know i saw it during the cal game gets me fired up every year uh the annual does uconn women's basketball have enough depth is there a depth issue with the team um it doesn't matter how many players gino Oriam has on the team it doesn't matter how many all-americans he has he's going to play six maybe seven no matter what it doesn't matter he's done this for for 20 years um so it just matters who comes into the, those, you know, that rotation of seven, right? So it doesn't matter. Gino's figured it out. He's won 11 titles with, you know, playing six or seven players. So it's not going to drastically change this year. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who cracks at seven because I think there's a few capable players, even with Westbrook out or likely out. Um, but I just had to say I just can't stand that question because it's like clockwork every year and – Credit to Gino, credit to the players he recruits, the players themselves. Uh, it always seems to work out. I was totally about to say depth in my in my rant earlier, where I'm saying expressing my concern for the team, but then I remembered exactly what you were saying. It's he does that every year. That's that's been the norm, and that was true really even of that 2016 team that went undefeated, and and all those teams since where even when we thought kind of the roster was open and maybe there was an opportunity for lots of people to play he still keeps that rotation really tight. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And I think unlike a lot of years past, where whereas, you know, even like going into last year, we knew what we had more or less on that roster, especially just given um, given Nafisa Collier, Katie Lou Samuelson, but also you had Dangerfield as a junior on that team. You knew what you were getting this year. We're really going to have to watch and see how they develop. So, should be a little bit more more intriguing than uh, than years past, where it was a little bit more of a steamrolling force, where the question was, will they be stopped? So at least at least we have something different to talk about. Um, men's basketball season is also underway. Dan Hurley's second season. Uh, they had one exhibition game against Division Two St. Michael's. And then opened the season with an 89-67 to 67 win over Sacred Heart. Um, they got off to a really ugly, ugly start. Um, but to their credit, stormed out of the gates uh, at the start of the second half and ended up you know, really putting it away relatively early in that second half and holding on. Um, couple of quick just news items on the team. Um, assistant coach Kenya Hunter is uh, out indefinitely due to medical issues, which is sad, sad to hear uh, and see that um, uh, Talik Brown will be taking uh, his spot on the bench. And then Richie Springs, who was a big man who joined the Huskies this off season was uh, originally a class of 2020 recruit who uh, moved down a, a year to be able to come to UConn, may have been uh, someone who could have provided the Huskies with some valuable low post depth, but he will be doing an academic redshirt this season. Um, and then last, just quick note, also James Booknight, after uh, his uh, court date and uh, things getting settled there, has received his team suspension of three games, so he'll be out through the Charleston class, uh, through the next three games and coming back in time for the Charleston Classic. Um, so that's what's going on with the men's team this year. How do we feel after that opening win, though, against Sacred Heart? I think we just made the point about women's basketball not having much depth or not using much depth, but I actually think it's pretty much the exact opposite for the men. I think you have four players that are really a cut above everyone else. You've got Alterique, you've got Christian Batal, Josh Carlton, and then Akuka Cook. 
but then beyond that, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I think um, it's a good thing, but I don't know if there's much difference between the rest of the roster. I think they're all really solid players, but not going to take over games. But I think because of that, you don't need every single guy on the court to be on his best. If someone's not having a great game, they can go onto the bench and someone can come in for them that maybe it's just their night to have a good night. Or maybe if you're going to the bigs, then it's going to be more of an Isaiah Whaley night. Or if you're shooting a lot more threes, it's going to be a Tyler Polly and Sid Wilson night. So I think to use a video game reference, they've just got a lot of guys that would be between like, 68 and like 72 ratings that you're more than comfortable putting out there to play. And um, there's just, it's just a very, very solid roster without a ton of weak spots. But at the same time, there's no one that's going to be threatening for a conference player of the year award or any significant postseason honors. But you, you kind of, I think can throw enough things at the wall with this team that you're going to find something. And I think that's what happened against sacred heart was that Sid Wilson had some moments from the foul line where he was looking good, had a big putback dunk, had a uh, big um, block. And then I think Brendan Adams looks much better this year where he can be a reasonable player. I think Tyler Polly's just such a, he's such a solid player in that, you, you know what you're going to get out of him every single night and it's not going to change a whole lot, but he's just a really consistent option. And I think that's great to have for a fifth guy. So I think talent wise, it's definitely uh, a solid roster and it's really just how much Hurley can coach him up and how much they're going to buy into playing defense and um, how much they can punch above their weight. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, my biggest takeaway from that Sacred Heart game, mulling it over after the past few days, was I think they overall they played well, but it's really concerning how flat they came out in the first half of the season opener of the second year under the head, you know, under Hurley going into the Big East next season. Uh, Christian Vitale's last game, last first game at UConn, scored two points in the first half. Um, I, I just think that's weird. Uh, they, they played great in the second half. They really turned it on. Uh, they look great against the zone, which is, I think, the first time I've said that on the pod. Um, they had Polly Wilson flashing to the middle, led to a bunch of open looks. They had a nice layup to a cook, a cook with a little reverse jam. So there's some signs of actual basketball coaching and some, you know, moving the ball on offense, something that we haven't necessarily seen uh, in a while. So I think things are going the right direction. And I think, Dan, you're right in that Wilson looked great. Brendan Adams looked a lot better. Um, I was pretty impressed with uh, with the Cook a Cook as well. I thought his athleticism and his raw skills really showed through, even though he wasn't necessarily lighting it up uh, outside of some, some pretty solid blocks. But um, it was pretty interesting to see the adjustment from the first half to the second half. Uh, it was really just Josh Carlton. Tyler Polly, uh, who really came to play in that first half, and it kind of kept you kind of float. But um, something that I, I'm going to try and keep an eye on, you know, uh, Wednesday against St. Joe's, if they come out flat again in the first half, I don't know if it's necessarily something on Hurley or something on the players, but uh, something that can't happen as they go to play a better competition. I think the piece that is evident to me, and I think you know, Connolly, some of your both of your points kind of touched on it, but just it's clear that Dan Hurley has lifted the quality of this team, uh, the overall quality of this team. Uh, right? There's guys at every position who can get the job done, and that's something that, especially those last few years under Ollie, they just were having way too much roster turnover and uncertainty uh, to have anything close to that. And so to be able to have so many different guys who can contribute and who are really, really solid. Uh, if unspectacular, is great. And um, just pretty much every name to a T, you can say, looks improved from last year, which is, again, something 
we didn't we were not able to say we were frustratingly not able to say in the last coaching regime uh but so clear that Polly and Wilson uh have have stepped their games up even after both having you know pretty good seasons last year as well Isaiah Whaley looks like a different player um a coco cook brings a whole new element the kind that UConn hasn't really had ever uh potentially uh in the low post and then Josh Carlton looks as solid as ever and also again the type of just really solid post player that we haven't seen from UConn in in a while so uh with Vital and Gilbert you know um they more are who they are at this point. So I think to your point, Matt, again, about, you know, like Vital getting off to a bad start, or in this case, Gilbert having an, an entire off night. Um, what was, you know, first of all, with Vital, it's like, that's kind of expected. He's a, he's a streaky player. Gilbert um, has been, has been known to have off shooting nights, especially, but they were able to survive that and get the offense going without him. And, and luckily Gilbert can really contribute to the team, especially as a defender, but also of course, as a facilitator. So um, I think it was, again, when you consider that they were able to overcome the slow start from those guys who they expect to be their lead scorers and then Gilbert not being able to do it all night. Um, you know, that's, that's a pretty good sign for what's going on on the rest of the roster. My concern is rebounding. Um, to be out-rebounded by Sacred Heart and really not have another guy who's kind of tough down there besides Carlton, um, I think that's going to end up really hurting the Huskies against some of those better teams and some of those bigger teams. Um, that's going to be a real – especially – offensive rebounds and second chance points. Those are, you know, in addition to being incredibly frustrated, that's just, you know, it's, it's one of the, you know, biggest signs of, of uh, losing teams when you give up possession, give additional uh, possessions like that. I'm very concerned about the rebounding on this team and wish, you know, it's where that Richie Springs situation uh, could have maybe helped that, but uh Something to keep an eye on will be if if one of these guys, a cook, Polly, uh, Whaley, can become a more consistent rebounder because they really need it. Yeah, and I think that's the the rebounding thing is is a great point, Amon. And the thing that was maybe the most frustrating is that overall, I think UConn played really well on defense last year. They would play the passing lanes and and go for the steals, and they'd get steals, but they would also get burned a lot and gave up so many layups, and it was extremely frustrating. But now it seems like they're doing better about picking their their moments when to kind of jump the, jump those passes. And Vitale had seven steals, which is pretty incredible. And there was, I think, UConn had 10 overall as a team. So uh, they did a really good job on that. And usually you see good defense leading to at least decent rebounding. Uh, and it just wasn't correlated at all. So, yeah, it's definitely something that needs to get ironed out. And, uh, you know, rebounding is more or less hustle positioning. So it's something that can be worked on and improved. Um, some are better than others, others obviously. But um, I think some of that is also Vital taking a little while to get going, too, because he's one of the better rebounding guards in UConn history. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that improves. I think it'll be a little better against St. Joe's, but it's definitely going to be a problem this season. And it's going to be extremely frustrating. Well, I'm excited that they have what what appears to be some, at least some coordination offensively, which has again been absent for a really long time. So that's that's been super exciting. Uh, the Huskies will be in action next on Wednesday night when they take on St. Joseph's at Gamble. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening. was something really weird that i stat that i came across but i don't remember what it was oh it was uh this is so unbelievably random but uh do you even know the name lauren dixon she was a senior with maya moore yes okay yep she had three less assists 
her senior year than she had total points scored. That's incredible. Like, right? I'm not making that, like, I'm not imagining that as being really insane. Like, that's kind of nuts, right? Say it again. So she, she had 109 points that season, and she had 106 assists. Okay, gotcha. That's pretty cool. That, that's, that, that's a high number. But I You're guess really in the weeds, Dan, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> They're playing basketball. We love that basketball. They're playing basketball. We love that Take me to the home. My favorite play is the alley. Ooh, I like the pick and roll. I like the giving.